0: Go and have a seat. Let's pray together. God, you are uh, you are good. Um, your word says that you're great and greatly to be praised, and you have done great things for us and in us. You are gracious. Uh, you've given us what we don't deserve. You are merciful. You've withheld from us what we actually do deserve, and we stand forgiven and right in your sight through the work of another, through the Lord Jesus, and and so we gather in this room to sing your praises because you are praiseworthy. Uh, all of eternity will be dedicated to resounding the praises of our God. Uh, and even now, angels never cease to surround your throne and sing the anthem of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. So we, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for what you've done Uh, we need you more than we acknowledge uh, more than even we know Uh, we thank you for every breath that we have been given in this short time that you have given us to study your word i ask that you'd help us uh, help us to be humble and teachable and moldable in your hands i pray that we'd be hungry as well uh, for what you want to give us through your word today and that we'd be eager to apply it to our lives Um, spirit of god i pray for your help uh, in my own heart as i preach and As we look this morning at a little bit of a glimpse of how the church early on was persecuted and met resistance, Um, Lord, we wanna be reminded of those our brothers and sisters around the world who are in chains and who are facing persecution even right now, who are unable to gather to worship with your people, who don't have Bibles at hand, um, who have to read their Bibles in secret, and we pray that you'd strengthen them uh, in their faith, the resolve to wanna please you and to proclaim you in places where even it's difficult or even illegal. Uh, we love you. We're thankful to be together this morning. Would you encourage us now as we uh, as we see great things from your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good to see everybody. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. You can grab your Bibles and open to the book of Acts. You're welcome to use a Pew Bible in front of you. I don't know what page it is, so sorry. Uh, If any of you haven't been with us, we uh, we just started a journey through the book of Acts. We've got some Acts journals actually out in the foyer if you want to grab one. They're bound copies of the book of Acts that you can use to take notes and personal study and even when you come here, but we have some extras that are still out in the foyer, but please grab one of those and excited to be with you this morning and um, we have... Now, journey through several weeks of the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 4. The beginning of chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 22. And as you might have uh, heard just by way of just even my prayer, some of what we're going to see this morning is, is the way in which resistance and persecution be- begins to come upon the early church. And throughout history, um, the road of the, the kingdom and the gospel going forward has been paved by the, by the blood and sacrifice of many Countless believers who've been faithful to the call to preach Christ and have suffered as a result of that. And even today, um, and we're kind of blind to this because of the nature of where we live, there are many across the world who are undergoing persecution and difficulties simply because they proclaim the name of Jesus. And so we're gonna see a glimpse of that this morning, and I pray to some degree it would kind of rattle us a little bit to to wake up from what can be a, a climate in our country where we can we can be given to slumber because quite honestly, we don't understand what persecution is like. And that's to our detriment in some ways because we don't feel the squeeze and the need to exercise faith uh, as, as much as maybe times where we're, we're facing resistance and persecution. But what we've seen so far in the book of Acts, Acts is really the story of the, the beginning of the church and the way the gospel goes forward to the nations and we saw the kind of mission statement in Acts chapter one, verse eight, uh, where Jesus says, you're gonna be my witnesses. Uh, here there and everywhere Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the, to the ends of the earth and I'm going to give you power to do that and what happens later is we see the the Holy Spirit come upon God's people at Pentecost and they begin to speak in languages that aren't aren't their own and and Peter preaches for the first time this man who used to be a coward now is courageous he steps forward and preaches. Thousands of people respond in faith and believe and you have the first church, the first mega church, you might say, right in the heart of Jerusalem. And then we saw in chapter two as well, the the nature of how they gathered, that they were together, they were devoted to particular things like prayer, to God's word, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to, to prayer. And they were together, they had union with Christ and with one another. It was a deep and sweet fellowship that they enjoyed, right? Then chapter three, last week, Pastor Jason preached on a miracle that happened at the hands of Peter and John. So they were going to the temple to to pray, and there was a man who begged for money, and they're like, we don't have any money, but we have Jesus, and in his name, stand up and walk. And this guy goes from lame to leaping in a second in Jesus' name, and that's where we're going to find ourselves. So this section is kind of colored by the miracle that just happened at the hands of Peter and John, but through the name of Jesus, which they were very particular to point people to. But let's go ahead and and read uh, in verse 1 in chapter 4. We'll read the first four verses to start. This is God's word in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So what we have here is Peter and John seem to to linger. They continue to, to preach and teach on the heels of this miracle. What we saw in chapter 3 is this guy who was healed was kind of holding on to them. He's been healed now, and everybody's standing around, and Peter turns, and preaches Christ to the masses. He, he preaches to the curiosity and confusion, like this is what's happened, Jesus Christ has healed this man that you see now among you as well. And we'll see a similar kind of tone from him today as we look through this section. So, but as a result of their preaching, this kind of religious squad comes upon them. The picture is they kind of suddenly grab them. They come upon them and they take them away because they were annoyed, they were agitated at the message. So this kind of multi-formed religious group, the priest, the captain of the temple, which is kind of like the temple police, and the captain of that police force in the temple, and then the, the Sadducees, which were kind of an aristocratic, kind of wealthy group that was a combination of political and religious coloring, and they all come at Peter and John. They're like, we don't want you speaking in Jesus' name. And they're agitated particularly by the preaching of the resurrection from the dead. Because the Sadducees actually didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were particularly uncomfortable with that message. But also, you can understand that because this same group was largely responsible for killing Jesus, they'd be really uncomfortable with the notion that Jesus was now alive from the dead. And we're going to get into that through this text as well. And it's really notable how Peter focuses on the resurrection of Jesus, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they came upon him suddenly, they throw him in jail, and so you can think of it this way, is they put him in chains for the night, because apparently it was later in the day, they throw him in jail, they're in chains, but here's the sweet picture, is that the word of God isn't imprisoned, because what happens is that Peter and John go, they're preaching, the word is going forth, they're captive now, they go into prison, I don't know if you saw what happened, but because the word went out, thousands more people believed. And it kind of rings of a section in 2 Timothy where where Paul is actually in prison at the end of his life. He talks about how he's a prisoner in chains. When he makes this statement, he's like, I'm in chains, but the word of God isn't in chains. So you might have a witness that's captivated in or captive in prison, but the word of God is never in chains. Like It will do its work. And so the word of God has been preached. People have believed and now the church has swollen to some 5,000 men even, not to even count women and children. So the church is growing. God's word, word is going forward with power. It's being preached with boldness. People are coming to faith. It's a wonderful picture. But in the midst of it, there's some difficulty obviously for these two men. But the church in Jerusalem continues to grow. And among many things that Jesus promised to his people, this is not necessarily a promise that we like to meditate on but I think we have to remember otherwise whatever persecution we might face might catch us by surprise or even squelch our faith. Because the promise that Jesus gave is that we were gonna suffer. That there was gonna be persecution for his people. And quite honestly, I think in this season as Americans for the church, persecution because of our faith might be closer than it ever has been in many ways. But Jesus said it this way. I'll I'll reference just a couple of quick sections. There's a whole lot that could be said here. John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Luke chapter 12, Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he says this uh, in recalling Jesus' words. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, which notably is what's happening here, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In 2 Timothy 3.12, this very certain statement that Paul gives, he says, every single person, all of those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's a foregone conclusion that in the Christian life, if we're living faithfully for God, it will mean resistance from the world persecution even, difficulty. And th- there's degrees of difficulty based on where we live, but in light of that promise, I think there's a difficult question we have to kind of wrestle with, and the question would be, would be this. Are we experiencing resistance and persecution from the world, individually, as a church? Do we feel a dissonance and resistance from the world because of the way in which we live? And if, if why, why? If, if we are, why? And, and and if we're not, why not? And here's something i just submit, is it may be that we don't experience resistance or persecution. I know this in my own life, over the years. It may be that we don't have resistance and persecution because our lives and our words don't really confront people with their need for Jesus. That we have a nimble enough faith to navigate through situations just to minimize the amount of waves that we can create by being a faithful Jesus lover, because that makes people uncomfortable. The name of Jesus is exclusive. We're gonna see that boldly here in just a moment from Peter. But I think we have to ask ourselves that question. And Tim Keller, commenting about the book of Acts and his book called Evangelism, I'm gonna read you a quote that's longer than what I would normally read, but I just I found it really helpful. It'll be up here. But Tim Keller says this, he says, commenting on the early church in the book of Acts, says they were both attractive and growing yet hated and attacked. This description of the early church cuts us two ways. If on the one hand we experience no attacks or persecution for our faith, it means we simply are being cowards. We're not taking risks in our witness, we're not being bold. On the other hand, if we experience attacks without a fruitfulness or attractiveness, lots of persecution and no affirmation, it may mean that we are being persecuted for being harsh, or insensitive, or strident, just particularly difficult. Jesus said we would only be blessed if we were persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is quite possible, indeed, it's very normal for Christians to be persecuted not for their faith, but for their discourtesy, insensitivity, and lack of warmth and respect in their dealings with others. Here's kind of a summation of this. Insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise but not persecution. Most Christians whose walk with God is weak actually get neither, but Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both as he did. I don't share this to be heavy-handed with this, but I think we have to be confronted with this. I think all of us deal with degrees of temptation to want to conform even in our faith to that which is the easiest road. Like we have, as I mentioned, like a nimble enough faith to not be too confronting in the way that we speak about Jesus and how bold we are in moments where we know we need to speak up, but we, just, we don't want to create shockwaves in the moment in that relationship. I know I've often been guilty of that over the years. But when we inevitably face resistance and persecution in our faithful witness, the question is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? That's really the the rest of this section kind of gives us Peter and John's response. Let's read verses 5 through 10. It says, On the next day, after they were in prison for the night, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all were of of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, set Peter and John in their midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? The miracle that happened with the man who was lame. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. That's, that's some bold preaching in a difficult moment. So just get, get this picture in view. that The same group, it could be 30 to 70 fold, kind of circled around Peter and John. They've been in prison. They bring him in now to be questioned. And notably, Annas and Caiaphas were central to the crucifixion of Jesus. This is just weeks earlier. In the same place. That Peter and John now stand before the very men who had a a heavy hand in executing Christ. So you can feel how difficult this moment would be. How tempting it would be to water down the message. But that is not what we see. Almost as if Peter leans in. He's like, listen up. You need to understand that everything you have seen is to the credit of Jesus Christ. The one whom you crucified, God raised him up. And that's the power, that's the name that has made this man well. Some bold preaching. And he was bold because he was filled with the Spirit. You see that stated outright. When Peter stood up, he was filled with the Spirit and he preached Christ. And we see the Spirit come upon God's people earlier in the book of Acts to fill them This is a particular moment where God's spirit fills Peter for a particular task of speaking boldly about Christ, and he gives Jesus away. In front of these very people that crucified Christ, this circle of intimidation, who undoubtedly were were whispering threats to them as they carted him off to prison. Uh, It's reasonable to think that both Peter and John would be like, I I don't know if our fates going to be the same as the Savior's, like he was here too. They asked him the similar questions. Are we gonna die as well? Are they gonna crucify us? All would be really reasonable questions and you have to think they probably wrestled with some of those but it didn't stifle the message. He says, listen to me. Make no mistake about it. What you're observing, the source of this change is Jesus Christ. That's echoes from chapter three. It's by f- by faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been made well. It's not by any power that we have possessed to make this, main, this man leaping from being lame. Jesus is the means of the healing. He's a source of the good deed. It's by and through and in Jesus that this miracle has taken place. And I think there's something we, we should just absorb in this as well is in any credit, as it were, any difference in our lives, we need to quickly deflect to Jesus in us, right? It's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. It's only by the grace of God that we're any different from the world, It's only by his grace that we have been saved and changed and and by degrees are being transformed even now into the image of Jesus. It's all due to him. And Peter goes on to to develop a picture of the cornerstone. Read there with me in verse 11. He says, at the end of verse 10, by him this man is standing before you well, by Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter grabs this picture from Psalm 118, which is an Old Testament passage, like a messianic psalm, that looked forward to this unique Messiah that would come, that would be the way in which God would build his temple. And now kind of the new temple, his people. Jesus is the one that it's built upon. He's the chief Cornerstone. You can see Peter looking at these men, these religious leaders. He's like, You rejected the stone. You, the builders, have rejected the very stone that the work of God is supposed to be built upon. You crucified him, but God raised him up. I don't know about you, but I, I enjoyed playing with Legos when I was growing up. And my kids, thankfully, played with Legos as well. But if you don't build with Legos, they're nothing but a severe hazard in the house. Some of you have stepped on a Lego before, you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't build with them, they're just dangerous for you. And that's really what Peter's saying. It's like if, if you don't build your life upon Jesus, he's gonna be the largest stumbling block you could ever imagine. is the only way for salvation. If you try to pave some other path, Jesus is only going to cause you to stumble because he's the chief cornerstone. You either build your life upon him or he will be to you a stumbling block. And there's, there's exclusivity in the name of Jesus. You'll either accept him as savior and submit to him as king or you reject him. There's no middle ground. You're either for him or you're against him. You either build your life upon him or you stumble Over him, and essential to what Peter is saying, the exclusivity of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. There's one door, there's one way, there's one truth, there's one life, one bread of life. Only one way by which men can be saved. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's continue to read verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter, so Peter just got done speaking, everything we just saw, now their response, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So what we've seen so far in multiple places is that the, the work of the Spirit of God, when it's genuine and real from the hand of God, is amazing to believers and non-believers. We've seen that word used in different ways. So in chapter 2 at Pentecost, that when people saw that these simple Galileans who aren't educated were speaking in languages that weren't theirs, it says that they were amazed and astonished that all these Galileans were speaking this way. After the healing in chapter 3, they were filled with wonder and amazement. After seeing the conversion or miracle of this man In hearing Peter, they were astonished. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, converts shut the mouths of adversaries. Here's what that means, is when you see legitimate change in a person's life, conversion in the truest sense, a movement from death to life, from darkness to light, it shuts the mouths of those who are in opposition. Because much like these religious leaders, they they couldn't say a word, because the fact that there was a legitimate miracle that had taken place, they couldn't argue with. All they could do is just try to silence those who would speak of it. And notably what they, I don't know if you saw this, if you, if you, if you camp there just for a second, you realize that what Peter talked about is, you crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead, but note how they don't respond. They didn't say anything about the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't try to refute the fact that Jesus was alive. And remember, we're just some 50 to 100 days beyond the crucifixion of Jesus. If Jesus was still in the tomb, it would have been easy enough to walk down and say, well, here he is. Stop talking about Jesus being alive. He's right here in the tomb. But that's not what they did. Instead, they just tried to shut him up. And that should give us confidence in faith, just like it gave them. Because the resurrection of Jesus is a historical, reliable fact, and it's the anchor of our faith. Paul himself said it. If Jesus isn't alive, then our faith is in vain. But if he is alive... It changes everything for everyone. Because everyone has to answer to the empty tomb. But they don't try to refute the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, the silence is really helpful. Because we talked about earlier on, even secular scholars believe that Luke was a, a historian of the first rank as he wrote this particular book in history. Also, there's there's a silent kind of miracle taking place in the heart of someone who was likely in the room with Peter and John because I don't know if you noticed there's a there's a part of the story that Luke develops where Peter and John were actually sent away and Luke tells us of basically kind of of a closed meeting that was taking place among these religious authorities so some have asked like how in the world did he know what was said well there's likely one person in that room that would have told Luke and it was Paul Saul of Tarsus, who comes to faith later in the book of Acts, was part of the Sanhedrin. It's likely he would have been right there listening to Peter and John's. What a, what a picture. Like Peter and Paul are going to meet later on, and Paul's going to go on to be arguably the greatest Christian of all time, right? Writing 13 letters in the New Testament. And he was right there hearing Peter and John talk about Jesus and him being alive from the dead. I think there's encouragement in that for us because we never know. We never fully know. We just let Jesus out. Like, let the Word of God out. Let it do its work. Because we can be paralyzed. We're like, I don't know if I said it right enough, and I don't see an immediate fruit. I'm not sure if this is being fruitful. We all struggle with that, but just speak about Christ. And it might be that a Paul comes alive months, years later to be a force for the kingdom of God. like What a sweet picture that is. But it's silent even in the story. But the boldness of Peter and John was amazing because they were uneducated and common men. They didn't have any formal rabbinical training. But the real simple picture is, is what they did have is they were filled with the spirit of God. And they were close with Jesus. They had been walking with Jesus. Like they recognized these men had been with Jesus. Common uneducated men and women full of the spirit of God and close to Jesus are a supernatural force for the kingdom of God, this two ingredient recipe. I don't know about y'all, I like to cook, but I don't cook much because Haley's a great cook. But there's something really refreshing about like a recipe that has two ingredients. Like the add water only pancakes, you ever tried those? They're not great, but they are really simple. So you take the powder, you just add water and then you have a meal. Like you just you don't have to do much, right? You just cook them. But in this picture as well, there's a real simple two-ingredient picture of Peter and John. That they were filled with the spirit and they were they were close to Jesus. As a result, they stood in the midst of an intimidating circle of religious leaders who wanted nothing but to condemn and silence them and they spoke Boldly about the resurrection of Jesus, and the same is true for us. Being full of the Spirit and close to Jesus provides confidence. Jesus is alive—the one whom they crucified. God raised from the dead. And I love this picture in Second Timothy, is Paul's last letter. He's about to die in Rome, and he writes a letter to his protege Timothy. And one of the things he does in several ways early on in the book is he just kind of takes Timothy back to the fundamentals. He's like, hey, stir up the gift within you that came to you through the laying on of hands. And it's like, be faithful to to suffer for the gospel. But he says this as well, which is like the fundamentals of the fundamentals. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Timothy's a pastor. Some think he was on the ropes and maybe experiencing difficulty in ministry. But despite that, he was a, a trained pastor, shepherding people. And Paul says, Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead simply and powerfully. That we have confidence in who we are and our proclamation of Jesus as Lord because Jesus is alive. He's alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about it. It's like Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He goes on to talk about how he appeared to witnesses. And he says some of them are still alive today that the resurrection is a reliable historical fact that should give us confidence in the faith that we proclaim, the Jesus that we point people to, that ultimately gives us courage. And this courage is really rooted in the fact that we fear God more than we fear man. And that setting, I not about you, there are moments where I've just flat out feared the response of men more than I fear God. That is central to our struggle in evangelism and boldness for the gospel. We just we want to be liked too much. We don't want to be the awkward one who loves Jesus too much. I think that if we're honest with each other, I think all of us struggle with some measure of that. Some people maybe more gifted in evangelism, but we're all called to do the work of missions, to be missionaries, to be witnesses in this world for Christ, to speak when God gives us opportunity to speak, to, to make an utterance about Jesus, the difference that he's made in us. And your testimony is a little bit like the presence of this man, like in the midst of Jerusalem. Everybody saw it. They're like, "We can't refute it. This guy's walking around. he's praising God. Everybody's praising God for this miracle. But every single one of us, like if you're a Christian in this room, you are a walking miracle. In a sense, nobody can refute. I don't know in my own life. The fact I'm preaching up here, the fact that I'm in any way leaning toward following God is a supernatural miracle of God. And you know, theologically, when you look at God's word, like every Christian has been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. Used to be a rebel and now is a child of God. That is a miracle. So there's a way in which our lives are like living testimonies to the supernatural work of God, much like this guy who went from lame to leaping after 40 years. But just don't discount the, the nature of God's work in your life, particularly to those who saw you before, who witnessed your life before when you were lame. And now you're praising God. And so I think we can be guilty of absorbing the credit almost for things that people see in us, the way we love each other, the way we work hard at work, the... Positivity or joy that we have in the midst of others, or faithfulness to our spouse, or whatever, but deflect the credit to Jesus. It's through his name. The power and name that all that work was done in was the name of Jesus. But our fear of man often can keep us from being faithful to God. Our desire to preserve self will often squelch our boldness for Jesus. Then the religious zealots, this religious establishment and squad of religious leaders, there's a couple of things I'd observe, and maybe some of this will resonate with possibly someone in this room. The religious elite rejected salvation in Jesus for following Jesus in humility to pursue validation and acceptance through moral behavior. You can't live long enough or do right enough to earn your place before a holy God. Every single one of us has fallen short of his perfection. So we get to be accepted in his sight through the perfection of another, another through the, the work of the Lord Jesus who lived perfectly in our place, fulfilled the law in our place, died as our substitute. But religious zealots in all of us reject the posture of subject to maintain social position or perception. That's what they were doing. So they they wanted to push out Peter and John Why? Because they're worried they were going to steal some of their thunder. Like they enjoyed social and religious prominence and position. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're a little bit afraid if we come out boldly for Christ that there's going to be some disruption to our position socially, possibly, or in relationships. But the faithful witness of Christ that I pray all of us would grow more and more into cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. We cannot stop pointing people to Jesus because even if it damages our reputation, it's his reputation that matters. And what we're gonna see next week as we go into the, this kind of middle part of chapter four is what happens with Peter and John when they're released is notably where they go is not into hiding, but they go to be with God's people. They go to report back to the people of God who are gathering and they pray they specifically pray that, ha- that they'd have more and more opportunity to speak boldly about the, the message of Jesus. And I think it accentuates, even this week I had, and this has been pretty common over this last year, unfortunately, just with the way in which COVID has isolated believers from the body of Christ in various ways, some of which legitimate, some of which just by way of um, kind of gravitating toward hardness of heart, toward the things that matter to God. And I was reminded this week that there's just the centrality of the body of Christ to the believer. There's a reason that Peter and John, when they are released, they flee to other believers, because that's exactly what God has designed us to do. Like, we cannot, we simply cannot be faithful to be witnesses for God apart from one another. We'll never succeed in that. Say it this way in in Belong class, like, the, the idea of a churchless Christian is foreign to the New Testament. You don't see it you won't find it. Because if you're a thriving Christian, you'll be thriving in the context of a, a group of Christians trying to do life together. And we wanna be that as a church more and more, faithfully pursue that, and next week we'll see how they pray with one another that God would continue to give them opportunity to preach and be bold for him. If you're in this room, and maybe in some ways, maybe you identify in your own heart just a you're unsure about your position before God, or maybe you even know that you're pursuing rightness with God through your own behavior and pursuit of consistency, your white-knuckle effort, then my encouragement is just just cast yourself upon Christ. It's only through Him. It's only in His name, by His power, that you can be accepted in the sight of God. And that comes through the vehicle of faith where we look to Him and all that He's done, all that He was, and say, everything that you are, I need by a simple, dependent gaze of faith and God credits to our account his perfect righteousness through faith and now our obedience is really an act of worship so as we get ready to sing let's just be reminded as we sing it's only one form of worship that we want to be those who live lives of worship as spiritual offerings as it were before God let's pray together as we uh, get ready to sing one last song Father, I want to thank you for your word, uh, thank you for the, the example of Peter and John, thank you for the, the way in which we not only just get description of how things used to be, but um, there's specific application in our lives that needs to be, that needs to take place, So we need to walk away with today. So I pray that whatever work you want to do in our lives, whatever conviction we felt through this text, that you would deepen it, and that it would move us to a place of action and obedience and faithfulness to you. And God, we we long to see more and more people come to faith. We long to see more and more conversions that would confound the world because of how supernatural they are. Um, There's nothing we can do to create that. If you don't show up in our lives, in our midst as a church, um, there'll be nothing of any eternal benefit that'll happen. But with you, what's impossible with us is possible with you. So we ask for your help. We ask for your blessing. We pray that Christ would be made known through us, in us, uh, through our fellowship as well, that we'd be motivated today to love him more than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen.